Let's pray now for God's blessing on His Word. Lord, we thank You that You are a promise-keeping God and that when You say that Your Word is living and active, a double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow, we are very thankful that You keep that promise because we are a people who very much have hardened hearts at times, who are unable to hear Your Word, who do not have those ears and eyes by which we might perceive the truth and live it out. And so we pray this morning that You would very much work Your grace in us by the power of Your Spirit so that Your Word would have a great impact on our lives. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've concluded our series on the renewed mind and we're turning now to a new series in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. You'll find that on page 389 of your pew Bible. Ezra chapter 1 and 2 is where we're going to be today. And I would guess that most people, most Christians are probably fairly unfamiliar with the book of Ezra. Maybe even not knowing where it is. It's one of those lesser books that's given lesser attention. And therefore, most people are unfamiliar with what is in it. And yet it has some great things to say to our church, I believe. Now, before we actually read, I know you haven't come for a history lesson, but I want to give you at least a brief outline of the events leading up to the book of Ezra, because you need to have some events fixed in your mind in order for the beginning of the book of Ezra to make sense to you. You may recall that after King Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. You had the northern ten tribes, which was designated as Israel, and then you had the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, often just simply called Judah. And so there's the dividing of the kingdom, and yet one of the things that is most notable after that is that the northern ten tribes of Israel very quickly fell into a state of apostasy. And God began to warn them over and over that if you do not repent and if you do not return to me and if you do not love me with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, then I will one day spit you out of the land. And in the year 722 B.C., he brought the Assyrian army against Samaria and the northern ten tribes and swept them away and they've never been seen again. Now the southern tribe of Judah was given the same warnings because although they were not nearly as bad as the northern ten tribes, they were, simply an, they were also an apostate nation to some extent. And God gave great warnings to them through the prophets that if you do not repent and turn to me and trust in my grace, then I will do to you what I have done to the nation of Israel. And in 587, God brought King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army against Jerusalem and Judah and laid waste to it and took the people off into exile. And they were in exile in Babylon for decades in 539, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And now King Cyrus of Persia was the greatest king over the greatest empire that the world had seen up until this particular point. Now the very next year, 538, is where the book of Ezra opens. And it opens with a decree from King Cyrus, a decree that will have lasting effects upon the people of God from this point on forward. 
Now the book of Ezra was originally written as one book with the book of Nehemiah. They were separated in the Latin Vulgate in the early church. But originally they were one work. And what they meant to do was to tell the story of how God's people were restored from captivity in Babylon back into the land of Canaan and reestablished as His people. And central to both books is a building project. In Ezra, it's the rebuilding of the temple. In Nehemiah, it's the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. But both building projects signify not only the need for a physical rebuilding of the nation, but more importantly, a spiritual rebuilding of the nation that God alone can do. And I think this book is very important for us because it reveals how God can restore a people to Himself and how He can renew that people and renew them in His grace. And I think it has something to say for our church in particular because it really answers the question, what can the church expect? What can the church expect as God builds and renews His church? And that's an important question for us to ask and for us to answer. Because our own church has experienced hardships and difficulties of many kinds. And there has been a work of rebuilding going on, you might say, by the Lord. And one of the things that we want to do is find out from the book of Ezra the answer to this question, what can we expect then as God is at work here at Reformation to rebuild and renew this particular congregation. And so with that lengthy introduction to the book of Ezra, let me read for us chapter 1 and then a couple of verses out of chapter 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says King Cyrus, or Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor and whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in charge of Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Shezbazar the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, thirty basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. 
All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. If you can imagine a baseball coach maybe teaching his little league pitchers how to pitch, and if he were to gather together some clips of pitchers, pitchers in the major leagues who had pitched very well, and maybe the first clip was of Luis Tatiant, and he showed the clip of Luis pitching, and he said, now do you see how he plants his foot, and he pivots, and he turns his back all the way towards the catcher. Don't do that. And then he shows Valenzuela as he spins and cocks his arm and at the apex of his rotation looks up into the sky and rolls his eyes back into his head and takes his eyes off of the plate. And he says, now don't do that either. And then he shows a clip of Dwight Gooden and how Dwight Gooden was very perfect in all of his mechanics, always keeping his eye on the catcher's mitt always rotating just perfectly. And he says, don't do that either. Because if you try to be as perfect as Dwight Gooden, it will eat a hole in your soul, just like it did his. And he had many struggles in life. Lots of examples of what not to do. And in many ways, the Old Testament is filled with lots of examples of the people of God of what not to do. The Apostle Paul in the first uh, letter that he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10, he said, recounting some of the story of Israel, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Israel in many ways was a tale of what not to do. Failure after failure after failure until they found themselves in exile in a foreign land under the judgment of God by which He is chastising them, disciplining them so that He would refine them in order to restore them and bring them back to Himself. And so the Old Testament's not only a story of, of failures of God's people, it's also a story of a gracious God who is constantly renewing His purposes for His people constantly remembering His promises to them and constantly drawing them back to Himself again and again. We see here in the opening of the book of Ezra that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God had made promises to His people and He remembers those promises and He will not forsake them. In Jeremiah chapter 51, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, that is the Persians, because of his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. God had prophesied through Jeremiah that one day he would stir up the king of the Persians to conquer Babylon. Because Babylon had come against his own people and had sinned against his own temple. And he's promised through Jeremiah that he would restore his people. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When the seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
The Lord has chastised, He's disciplined His people, and now He wants to restore them just as He promised that He would. He will fulfill His promise. He has brought them low, and now He wants to restore them and renew His promises to them. Now, as I said a few minutes ago, our own church has had its fair share of struggles in recent years. And maybe some of you who have been here for quite some time feel as though our church has been through an exile of sorts. That we've been in the wilderness, so to speak. That God has brought us through a very difficult time, that He's brought us low, and we certainly cannot say with all certainty the purposes that God had planned for us. We can never say uh, definitively what God is doing in a particular event, but what we can know is what He tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, which by the way, I would recommend to you if you are going through a time of struggle or if you think that it is on the horizon, you need to read through chapter 12 of, of Hebrews because it speaks of how a loving Heavenly Father disciplines His children out of love. That He does so that He might refine them the writer of Hebrews speaks of this discipline that is for our good that we may share in His holiness. And so one of the things that we can certainly say about the time that God has brought this church through is it is for our purification. It is for our holiness. It is for our good. It's so that He might restore us and make us more like His own Son. But even though we may have experienced the chastisement of our Heavenly Father, let's not forget that His purposes for His church are everlasting. They never fail. He is always at work. And He is always pleased to draw His people to Himself. And so what we might say is that His purpose for, for this church are not through, that He's constantly working in us and working through us, that He is building His kingdom right here, that He has new purposes for this particular congregation because he's, what He's doing is really weaving our efforts in His kingdom. He's weaving us as a congregation into the larger picture of what His kingdom is all about, which is the rule and the reign of Jesus over the entire world. And so here God in, in the book of Ezra is renewing His purposes for His people and I'd say He's doing the same for us. And as we grow spiritually and as we grow numerically, one of the things that we are beginning to face are growing pains. And these are good problems to have. How are we going to handle things? As, as new people come into our church and we're blessed with new members, as we grow spiritually, there are certain growing pains that we will endure. But those are good problems to have. But the question is, what is God doing in our midst as He brings renewal and restoration to this particular congregation and the book of Ezra outlines for us many principles by which God works so that we're not taken off guard, so that we're not surprised, but rather we have a, a bird's eye perspective, you might say, on the work of grace that God is doing right here. And so if the, the church is to be renewed, let me mention a couple of big points. First, God alone can restore His people. God alone can restore His people. Restoration is God's work because it's always a work of grace. Always a work of grace. 
we see in chapter 2, I didn't read all these names and numbers, but really a running list of all the people who came back on this first trek back to Jerusalem. And it's filled with different types of people from various tribes, along with the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, all the people that went back on this first trip. Now we read over things like that and we skim over them when we're reading our Bible on our own, but they're filled with wonderful treasures. And the issue that is at point here is that what God is doing is restoring His people to the land and renewing His promise. Remember all the lists in the book of Joshua as they allotted the land and God said, now this is your inheritance. I promise it is yours and you own it. And now He's doing the same thing here. He's listing out all the various people who went back and He said, now the covenant promises are renewed for you. They are your promises. They are true. And I give them to you and you can trust in them. So here He's renewing His promises and He's bringing His people back. But when God does a new work and He restores a people to Himself, He always does two things. One, He demonstrates His power. He demonstrates His power. Now, God had brought His people into complete subjugation. First to the Babylonians, but now to Cyrus, who is, you might say, the greatest ruler in all the world at this particular point. And look what happens. The Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. He stirred up his spirit. Here is God doing something great. Now Cyrus has a totally different intention. You see, the way the Babylonians worked things is they conquered a people, they took those people, and they brought them back to their own land so they could indoctrinate them. The Persians had a different political strategy. They were going to send all the people back so that they could make them happy. So that they would flourish. And then they could benefit from their taxes. And they would have devotion from them. Now that's Cyrus' plan. It's a, it's a wise political tactic, but what he doesn't know is he is part of a greater worldwide purpose of God. And that is, God will stir his heart to do this. So that God can accomplish his promises. And God will fulfill his purposes to his people. And so he's stirring Cyrus' heart. But not only that, verse 5, we're told that he stirs the heart of his own people to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is the temple. It's sort of like the disciples who were very fearful after the resurrection. And it was only when the Spirit of God descended upon them and stirred their hearts and empowered them that they went out into Jerusalem and into Judea and to Samaria and all around the world proclaiming the good news of the Gospel. Because the Lord had now stirred their hearts. And that's what He's doing here. He's stirring their hearts towards service to the Lord. But all the good works that they will do are a result of the inward work of renewal that God alone can accomplish in the human heart. He's stirring hearts so that they might be renewed spiritually in order to serve Him well. And more than anything, that's exactly what the church always needs, is for God to stir our hearts and renew us spiritually so that He can use us effectively in ministry. But I will say this, I think this spiritual renewal is not exactly what we think of it as. 
we typically think that spiritual renewal brings great blessings, and it does. Sometimes we think of what is often referred to as revival in the church as bringing great blessings, and it does. But oftentimes we assume that it comes with no negative side effects. That if revival were to take place in our church, what a blessing, our our problems would be solved. There would be no issues anymore. We would would have everything that we need. Yet interesting, one of the things that Jonathan Edwards, who was a Presbyterian minister in the 18th century in New England, and who lived and ministered to what is called the first great awakening. He had many things to say to people in later generations about what revival looks like. And one of the things that he says is that actually revival brings oftentimes more problems than it solves. And there are often greater struggles that come along with it. And so he's really warning the church, be careful because when revival begins to take place, there are great troubles that come along with it. There are people who all of a sudden need great amounts of spiritual help. There are people who have renewed zeal for God and yet very little knowledge of God and knowledge of how to serve Him. And that can become a very problematic kind of situation. And so when God begins to stir His own people, it often takes a form that we do not think that it might because it begins to stir up things in our hearts that maybe we didn't realize were there. Begins to unearth sins and idolatries that were latent but were never clearly seen before and very unexpected. Sort of like going to the doctor for your annual checkup and you think all is well. He'll check my blood pressure and my cholesterol and I'll get some good readings and I'll go home. But you get a totally different report. And all of a sudden you realize that you have clogged arteries and you need surgery. And what Jesus often does is He's renewing us is first of all beginning to unearth all the unhealthy things, the, the poisonous things about our own sin and our hearts and the idolatry that we find there. And He's beginning to transform us from the inside out. And I'll just say that if your life has never been turned upside down by God, if your heart has never been unearthed, you might say, and exposed and various difficulties laid bare, then it may just be that what you've done for your whole life is give a proverbial stiff arm to God and say, now I don't want you to come any closer. But you see, if you want God's power in your life, then you have to deal with the fact that what He wants to do is begin to unearth all those things that are corrosive and transform us from the inside out. And as God is at work in the church at large, a real similar demonstration of that same power is at work too. And I think this is often one of the reasons that the church in general and individual Christians want to seek to grow spiritually in our own powers. That's because the power of God is uncontrollable. It is unbridled. It does whatever it wants to do because it's at the will of God's mercy. And so oftentimes what we want to do is control and manage our spiritual growth in right ways that that don't challenge us too much. In ways that we feel like we can handle and manage. 
But when the Lord's power begins to take work in our life, all of a sudden it feels as though the training wheels are off and I'm, and I'm floundering. And yet what He's really doing is a work of grace in us begin to make us totally different people. You know, there's no church, there's no Christian family, there's no individual Christian that has ever renounced its claim to a level of power in their life to do what only God can do. And we hold on just a little bit to what we find that we can fix ourselves, what we can change about ourselves, how we can grow ourselves, how we can fix our condition and solve our problems. And what we end up doing is growing in our own image rather than in the image of God. And if we want to grow as individual Christians and as, if we want to grow as a congregation as a whole, then what we have to do is bow ourselves before the very presence of God to allow His gracious power to be at work in us whatever it might do that He would have His way with us and begin to transform us. And friends, when that begins to take place, then greater powers of the kingdom of God become unleashed in ways that we may not even be able to imagine today. And so what God does when He begins to restore a people is first of all demonstrate His power. But second of all this, He begins to grant provisions for us. He says here in verse 4 that this is the decree of Cyrus. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, that's whatever place in Babylon he lives, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And then on down in verse 6, and all who are about them aided them with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. You see what's going on here is God is not only calling them out and granting power that they might do it, but He's also providing for all of their needs. Very similar to when God brought His people out of Egypt in the Exodus. What did He do? He stirred the hearts of the people in Egypt to offer His people materials, goods, food, gold, silver, jewels, all that they would need to build the tabernacle. And He's doing the very same here, isn't He? He's providing them all that they need. It's because God never sends His people out without the provisions necessary to do the things that He calls us to do. And it's not just that God provides us with things. God provides us with more than what we actually need because He provides us with His very self. You remember the promise that Jesus gave to the disciples just before He ascended into glory? He gave them the command to go and make disciples of all nations and He said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God doesn't just give us the things that we need. He gives us Himself. What more could we need? Does He not own the cattle on a thousand hills? Does He not own the entire universe? Does He not share His spiritual blessings with us? Does He not give us spiritual gifts? And most of all, does He not provide us with the spiritual resources that we need to grow and be sanctified? That Through the cross of Christ, Jesus has dealt finally with our sin. 
that we are cleansed by His grace, that we are transformed by His grace, and He does not withhold that grace from us. So God gives all the provisions that we could possibly need. Jesus provides more to His church than we ever give Him credit for. Some of you know what it's like to actually get to the breaking point. To the point where you feel like, I just can't go on any further. I can't put another foot in front of the other. And then somehow, it, it seems as if you're, you have this strength to go on. You, you don't know where it comes from. And yet it's the Lord providing the strength necessary to continue to go on, to continue to trust in His promises, to continue to seek Him. Some of you know what it's like to feel bitterness in your heart towards somebody and be unwilling and God's command to forgive even your enemies just sort of eats at you and eats at you and eats at you. Until one day it's like you wake up and all that just pent up tension just melts away. And you wonder, where does that come from? It comes from the gracious provisions of God where He begins to transform us and we're able to say with the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you and my, my power is made perfect in weakness. God is able to do all of these things and provide all that we need. You know, there are lots of struggles that churches face. Divisions at times, loss, false doctrine, apathy, sometimes pride, sometimes powerful personalities that just seem to dominate the life of the church. There's internal conflict. There's people who feel as though they're left out. People who feel as if the church is out of touch with their lives. There's external pressures as the world brings persecution to bear. There are struggles upon struggles within the church. And as our own sin and lack of belief is brought to the surface and the power of God seems as though we're given over to a period of chastisement and discipline by God. But as we trust in Him, and as we return to Him, He is gracious to provide everything that we could possibly need to live for His glory. Well, I'm just about out of time, but let me say the second main point very quickly. God not only restores, but also God's people must return to Him. That's really what we see in the second chapter where people are returning to life in the land. We read it in verse 1, where they return to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then at the very end of the chapter in verse 70, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. They went back to what was home for them. They are restored. But it's not just a matter of being reestablished physically in the land. It's actually a matter of spiritual restoration as well. And so the question is, not are they going to live in the land, but are they going to live in devotion to God while they are in the land. You see, spiritual renewal is not just a matter of relocation. It's not just a matter of moving to a different church. It's a matter of spiritual transformation of the heart. And that's what God wants from His people. We see in this chapter, one of the interesting things is a, a sense of exclusivity 
within the people of God. We're told in verse 59 of chapter 2 that there were people who could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And again in 62, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Now what's going on there is in part the fact that the people of God want their own nation to be pure. To be true believers. People who are really have an interest and an inheritance within Israel. And so there's this exclusivity here. But it's not just simply as a, as a group or as a club to say we're welcome and you're not. But rather it's because God gave the purpose that when His people live distinctly for Him, the world takes notice. The world takes notice. This is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, when you live according to my laws, the nations around you will say, what wise God you must have. What gracious God you must have. And they will be attracted to you because of the way in which you live for me. And that's what they long for here. And it seems as though they have this desire to be reestablished in the land and to live for God. And God stirs their hearts. And what we see as a result of that in 68, verse 68, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. So there's this sense of, of self-giving, of sacrificial giving in order that the temple might be rebuilt and people seem to be devoted to God. But one of the interesting words in this whole section of Scripture is the word some. Verse 68 says, some of the heads of the families. Not all, but some. One of the other interesting things that Jonathan Edwards speaks of when he talks about revival in the church is he says it's always a mixed work of God. That there are changes that are going on in some people that are not going on in other people. And that seems to be the case here. Some of the people are willing, but not all the people are willing. And what I want to say to you is this. That to the extent that we withhold ourselves from God, either numerically or even within our own personal hearts, we forfeit a right to His blessings. Now, I don't mean by that that if you obey and you keep your nose clean, God will bless you. God blesses us not because of our obedience, but rather through our obedience. It's when we are willing to give ourselves to God that all of a sudden He breaks open great blessings of the kingdom and pours them out upon us. And so what the church is called to here is not that some, but all, would return to God and give ourselves to Him on a daily basis. You may recall the war in Bosnia in the late 1990s, and it was made famous uh, in some ways by the escape of an American Air Force pilot, Scott O'Grady. And after a number of days uh, surviving on his own, scavenging for food, he was rescued. A U.S. helicopter amazingly found him in an open area, it landed and Scott was hiding out in the bushes. 
But rather than looking at the helicopter and saying, well, I really wish that he would move a little bit closer for me. Or, you know what, I I think I'll hang out in the bushes here for a little bit longer. I kind of like it here. Check in on me in a few weeks and see how things are going. No, actually what he did was he, he sort of marshaled all the strength that he had left and he fought his way through the bushes and he grabbed his pistol and he pulled it out and he ran for everything that he had. And he put himself in a position to be rescued. And my friends, what God wants is for His people, all of His people, to come to Him, to devote themselves to Him. So that we can put ourselves in a position of great blessing. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he said that God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some teachers, and evangelists, pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? So that we could all attain the unity of the Spirit and mature manhood in Christ. In other words, we're all to be engaged in that. And for the church to grow and for the church to flourish, that's what it requires. Because unfortunately, the rest of Israel's history looked like the prophets constantly reminding them, now this is who you're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to live as God's people. Return to Him. Return to Him. And you see, this second exodus, you might say, from Babylon was not enough. It was a final exodus that was required. The exodus that Jesus would bring. Because you may remember in the transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, they were talking, and Luke records for us, that what they were talking about was the exodus that Jesus would have to fulfill. That He would bring His people out of sin. He would be the one to send His Spirit to transform their hearts. Only God can do it. But when He does, may we respond wholeheartedly, every single one of us, so that it might not be said some of the people of Reformation, but rather all the people of Reformation gave their hearts willingly to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so gracious and good. I've spoken too long, but you are able to do with your word great and powerful things. We pray that you would. May it be the great delight of our lives to trust in your power and all that you provide for us so that we would return to you at each and every day and give our lives to you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.